Corinthians, and, and looking at why Paul was writing it, there are so many similarities to Paul's day in writing to Corinth and our day today, what we see in Christendom today. Uh, so this book is very, very applicable to our day, day in life. And so as we continue on, um, there were many things that Paul was writing to, to try to correct. When, when we get to chapter 3, we'll see in these first two chapters, uh, Paul is really uh, laying the groundwork. He's really uh, emphasizing the, the Christian ground on which we stand. That, that, that ground on which the cross has supplied us, that solid foundation, and he sets the cross before them. We find at the end of chapter 1 that there was a problem. Some were saying, I'm of Paul. Some were saying, I'm of Apollos. Others were saying, I'm of Apollos, uh, of uh, Cephas. And, and then there were the real spiritual ones that said, well, you people are all you people, but we are of Christ. And, and so there were four different groups in this assembly that is mentioned. And what Paul does is in chapter 2, uh, he resets Christ. In chapter 1, chapter 2, he sets Christ before them. He sets the cross before them. And in doing so, he puts man aside. He's saying that, that no matter who you follow, the man isn't the, 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 the deal. What is important is following Christ. And he sets Christ before them. Chapter 3 shows them their real problem is that they were carnal. That they, they were fleshly. That they moved according to the flesh. And, and they did things according to the flesh. There was this me first generation there. And, and that's really the flesh exhibiting itself. And then in chapter 5, Paul talks about the, uh, the, the fact that there was sin in their midst. There was a man who was, was living with his father's wife, obviously his stepmother, and he was sleeping with her, and this was a real problem in Corinth, and it was affecting the assembly, of course, the testimony, and Paul, Paul brings this out, tells them that they, they have to deal with sin in their midst. And then in chapter uh, 6, 7, and 8, he's talking about uh, the fact that they were taking one another to court. They were taking one another to, to, to court in front of the world instead of dealing with their problems in a biblical way. And, and so they had some real issues. There was idol, there was eating of meat that was offered to the idols in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. And, and we, we, we see all this kind of things going on in Corinth, and this is why Paul is addressing this. But what really impressed me in our verses today, as we have this before us, we'll just try to catch up here, uh, when we have in our verses today this manner of Paul being thankful, in fact, in my notes, I, I, I wrote down this, this matter of encouraging gratitude for them. Verses 4. Encouraging gratitude for them. And that's what we find first of all. And, and it really impressed me because if you and I have something against somebody else and we, we are going to sit down and talk to them, what do we do? Normally, uh, we just sort of let them have it. If we've got a problem with someone or we want to deal with a situation, 
We just meet that, uh, well, if we don't ignore it, sometimes we, we might just bury our head, head in the sand, but most of the time when we're dealing with the situation, we just attack that situation head on, right? Not Paul. What Paul did first, and Paul took his cue from the Lord Jesus, uh, I think, and, and what Paul did first is that Paul found something in them that he could be thankful for. Before he came down on them, he told them how he was thankful for them. And I think that that is a tremendous principle for us to think about. Uh, we find the Lord Jesus doing the same thing in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 and uh, 2 and 3. We find the Lord Jesus always giving a con uh, commendation before he gave a condemnation. And the combination always comes first. He commends before he condemns. There are things that we must condemn sometimes. There are things that we must judge. There are things, there are issues and situations that must be addressed. And that's what Paul does in this book of Corinthians. But what really stood out to me in our verses today is what we're going to find is Paul commends. He has, he, he encourages them, he, he lays before them this encouraging gratitude for them. He begins in a very positive way. And notice this, he says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. And so the first thing he says is, I thank my God always concerning you. What a thought. That when I think of you, I give thanks. That I am thankful for you uh, all times and at every opportunity, on every occasion, I am thankful for you. Now, you know, I was thinking about this. When, when uh, I'm always challenged when I, when I read this because I wonder sometimes, uh, let's just put it this way. I wonder sometimes uh, uh, when people think of me, and people think of you, is this the thing that comes to their mind? They say, oh boy, I'm so thankful. Or they say, I'm so thankful he's not here. <laughs> right? And, but Paul, when he thought of them, he said, I'm so thankful for them. I'm blessed by them. I am so thankful for them. And this is, and, and, and I think that, that what Paul does in these verses that we're going to look at is Paul sees Christ in them. He doesn't see them in them, but he sees Christ in them. He doesn't see them, and what I mean by that is, he does not see them in their old nature. First, he sees them how Christ has made them. And, and that, I think, is something that we need to develop in our own Christian life. If I give a name of somebody, and I'm not going to do it, but if I throw out a name to you, if you and I are talking, and I throw out, oh, okay, I'll do it, and I throw out uh, Shelly's name, what do you think? If I throw out Phil's name, what do you think? What comes to your mind? If I throw out Jonathan's name, what comes to your mind? Is it thankfulness? And let me just really give you a challenge. If I throw out my name, what do you think? 
You see, this is, this is what Paul, every time, and Paul developed this as a habit in his life. This isn't just something that was for the Corinthians. In fact, as you go through the scriptures, uh, and I wrote down a few, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time I think of you, I thank God for you. What a challenge for, from my heart today. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, he says, we, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And what Paul is saying is, when I pray for you, those at Thessalonica, he says, uh, when I pray, you come into my mind and I pray for you. You know, I think this would be very helpful if we, we have so many social uh, uh, outlets, we have so many, we have Facebook, we have this, we have that, we have Snapchat, we have Twitter, uh, we, we have so many things. And why don't we use that to connect with the Lord's people and say, hey, I'm just praying for you today. And, and let them know that we're praying for them today. Let them know that, that, let someone know. I think of Brother Naeem Suarez, who's now with the Lord. But I remember uh, he would just, he would always, he didn't like to do the social media stuff, but he liked to just give somebody a quick call. And he would say to them, hey, I just want to let you know I'm praying for you today. I'm not going to keep you long. I just want to know, let you know I'm praying for you today. And then he would hang up. And then afterwards you're thinking, wow, that was kind of neat. And he developed that habit, just like Paul developed this habit. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Paul says, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve and remember you in my prayers. And lastly, in Philemon, verse 4, he says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayer. You see the habit of Paul? The habit of Paul was to give thanks. In fact, that's why he could say, because he did this himself, he, he practiced this himself, that's why he could say in Ephesians chapter 20, he could say, uh, chapter 20, verse, chapter 5, verse 20, he could say this, uh, he could challenge them and encourage them to say, Give, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one other verse in Colossians chapter 3, uh, just on this matter of giving thanks, which I think is so important. That we, that we don't just leave it for Thanksgiving, the day of Thanksgiving, but we practice this in our everyday life. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, he says this, And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. And then there's one other verse in, in uh, I'll just mention it, in uh, Psalm 92, verse 1, it says, It is good to give thanks. And so Paul developed this in his daily 
life, particularly, and, and this is how he begins, before he says anything condemning to them, he's reminding them of their position in Christ. Keep in mind these first nine verses of chapter 1 of Corinthians is really reminding these saints of their position. And he looks back at the past and he's giving thanks for them. And he gives thanks particularly, and this is what we want to see. The second thing I want to mention is that he is giving thanks for the enriching grace of God in their lives. I want you to see something in verse 4 to verse 8. Look where the period is. There's no period until you get to the end of verse 8. So from verse 4 to verse 8 is one long sentence. We would call that a run-on sentence today. The, the, the English people and the editors would, would have a heyday with that verse, but with that sentence. But he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. Key in on this little word for. Because that is the, that is the clause, really, in the middle of this that begins the reason he offered thanks for the, those at Corinth. And, and he says that he gave thanks for the grace of God. The grace of God. The undeserved favor. And notice it was past tense. That was, he says, that was given to you in Christ Jesus. And he, he connects this, he connects this grace uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ as where he is now present tense, where he is presently, Christ Jesus, the man in the glory, not Jesus Christ, the man who walked here in this scene, but Christ Jesus, the resurrected man in the glory. And, and I think this is extremely important uh, in the context here that we, that we see this because there he is and it really connects us back to what we've already had in the chapter, in verse 2, and uh, it just helps us to see that what Paul is saying is based upon the grace of God that has reached down, picked you up out of the miry pit, and set your feet upon the solid rock, that foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, brought you into a relationship with God through Christ, he says, this grace that was given to you, in Christ Jesus. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't earn it. There's nothing you could do to get it. But God smiled upon you. And God gave you grace. Undeserved favor. And we have to say that that's true for every one of us. That we are what we are by the grace of God. And nothing else. God's grace has touched our lives. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I guarantee you that if, if I had to do something and I could achieve something for my salvation, I guarantee you I would be boasting about it and say, do you know what I did to get this salvation? And that's why God says, no, it doesn't work that way. 
It's undeserved. It's undeserved. And so the very one writing this about this grace that was given, he understood this grace. He was the chiefest of sinners, he called himself. And what I see here is, and this will go a little bit away from the PowerPoint, but it goes right along with it. What I see here is eight different marks of this grace that is shown. And the first thing that I want to just outline is where this grace comes from. The source of grace is it is the grace of God. As I've already said, it's unmerited favor, but it comes from God. It flows from the throne of grace. God has given us this grace, the source of grace. And notice this, secondly, the sphere of grace. The sphere of grace is, as in verse 4 says, grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. Now some translation says by Christ Jesus, but it really has the idea of in Christ Jesus. It is emphasizing our position. And, and really the idea is that it's our position in Christ, just like Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock for protection. It was God's provision for Moses. And you and I are hidden in Christ Jesus. That is God's provision for us. That is the position in which he places us in. It is by Christ, it is through Christ, and it is in Christ. It's all Christ. In fact, if you go back in this chapter uh, and, and read from verse 1 down to verse 10, what you'll find is 10 times, <laughs> 10 times, Jesus Christ is mentioned. Either Christ Jesus, Jesus, Son of God. The emphasis here in our position in the first 10 verses is Christ. It's all about Christ. He is the sphere in which we have been brought into this grace. And so the Son is mentioned ten times. And Paul uses this, this phrase, in Christ, to really underline the position of every believer. And if you study closely the book of Ephesians, for example, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, and you just, just read through it, and just make a mark. Take a highlighter if you want. And just highlight every time he says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's our position. We're no longer in Adam, the man that brought sin into the world. We're no longer in Adam. Now we're in Christ. And now when you read the word, when you read also in connection with this, the term with Christ, that means our association. But in Christ means you and I are positioned in Christ. And, and with that in mind, let's go to the third thing that I find in verse 5, where he says here in verse 5, that you were enriched in everything in him, in all utterances and all knowledge. And so when we consider this then, uh, this manner of being in Christ, uh, he says that you are enriched, enriched in everything. Now that's, this, that is such a, 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 this underlines the scope of this grace that we're talking about. It really emphasizes the generosity of this grace. This unlimited, he says, in everything. 
And some people talk about some people talk about the second blessing. Right? There are different denominations, and they'll talk about the second blessing. But what does scripture teach us? Let's come back to this idea. He says here in our verse that we are already enriched in everything. Let's take another verse. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says that, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Nothing needs to be added. We have everything that God wants to give us. We have. Because we're in Christ. Because of that position in Christ. Now, we grow in those things. We grow in our understanding. We grow in our appreciation. Absolutely. But God, if we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, which every believer does, having believed, we're sealed with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 1.13 says, and, and since we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the things in which God has in store for us. God wants to bring us into those rich, rich blessings of His grace. And that's for every Christian. That's for every believer. Nothing is held back from any of us when, it, when we talk about this enriching grace. That's the scope of this grace. I, I, I was thinking of this verse from Romans where it says, where sin abounded. I look at my own life. And I have to say, sin abounded. Sin abounded. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You think of that. So there's no limitation here with the scope of God's grace. And this is what we have. Now, number four, I want to share the, the sharing of this grace. It says in all utterances or in all speech, the word all here means all kinds of speech and knowledge. Now on the one hand, it could refer, uh, it could refer to the very areas they have difficulty with. Um, when we look at this, uh, all uh, utterances and, and speech and all knowledge, it, it could actually refer to the areas where they had, um, they had difficulties with the gift of tongues, they had gift of uh, difficulties with the knowledge they've been given. But I think it's more than that. I don't think it really pertains to that. Some commentaries do, and, and that's okay. In the words of J. Brenner McGee, if they want to be wrong, that's okay with them. But I, what I think it means, in a larger picture perhaps, what I think it means uh, is, in, in the broadest sense, is that we... We've been given everything that we could be given in order that we might be a testimony for Christ, to share the grace of God. That's what God really wants us to do. He wants us not to, to hide these blessings to ourselves, but that we share them. And all utterances, all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ is confirmed in you. And so when we consider this, um, this is what uh, I believe that these verses really mean. And as we have up here, all speech, utterances, speaking for God, 
uh, when he wants us to. All knowledge, a deeper understanding, a fruitful uh, when properly applied. That we might be a blessing to other people. That's really what I think these verses mean. I don't think it really pertains to their difficulties they're struggling with because in the context of these first nine verses, Paul's not talking about difficulties yet. He's not addressing difficulties yet. He does that in verses 10, 11, and 12, and onward throughout the rest of the book. But he, he's not addressing difficulties. He's emphasizing their position in Christ. He's emphasizing the grace of God that has been brought to them. So I call this the sharing of God's grace. The sharing of grace. And then, fifthly, the securing grace. Look at verse 6 again. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, or confirmed, really, um, among you is another translation. And the idea here is that this securing grace, God's grace, helps us to receive God's grace. Do you know that you cannot, I cannot receive what God has for me if it wasn't for the grace of God? It's by the grace of God, but it's also through the grace of God. And, and when we consider this then, what he's telling us, this, this grace, um, and, and the word that he keeps using is charos, it's, it's really emphasizing the very grace of God over and over Again, in verse 7, he says, So that you come short in no gift. Now, some people will take this to mean spiritual gift. But the word gift there is charos in the Greek. And, and, and that's the same word that's used in verse 3 and in verse 4 of the grace of God. And so what he's talking about is that, that God's grace, you can never come short of God's it, of anything because God's grace has been given to you and it's been given to you as a gift. And so when we look at this then, uh, the, the securing grace is that it comes into my life, the word confirmed, it comes into my life, the grace of God, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. I would say by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit of God, but this word confirm, it means to make stand. It means to help me to stand. To be steadfast. It, it gives me my standing before God. The grace of God is my standing in the presence of God. That's what the word confirm means. So as I consider that, uh, and then connect that, but before I connect it, I'll just say this. What this does is it helps us in, it, it secures our position before God. You see, my position before God isn't about me. It's all about God's grace. I have nothing to do with it. It's God's grace. Now I have responsibility as one who stands in that standing before God, position before God. But it's really about God. So there's security of grace. Verse 7 takes us into something else. Verse 7 where he says, as we've already touched a little bit, so that you come short in no gift, 
This has to do with the sufficiency of this grace. Isn't this amazing that God's grace is sufficient? Uh, we find this in 2 Corinthians as you read through 2 Corinthians. Paul emphasizes over and over again that this sufficiency is not in us, but it's in God. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. This sufficiency that, that it's God's grace that is sufficient to strengthen me. It's God's grace that is sufficient to anoint my lips and help me to be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God's grace that's able to sustain me and strengthen me as I go through difficulties in life. When my weakness is being displayed and I'm feeling my weakness, it is God's grace that strengthens me. And that's what Paul had to learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So this grace is sufficient. It's sufficient uh, for all that we need. And then number seven in this is that uh, the splendor of this grace. What's at the end of the road? Right? What's at the end of the road? What's waiting for us? Notice what he says here in verse seven. So that you come short and no gift, eagerly, that means anticipating, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word revelation means just what it says. It, it really has the idea of, uh, it's the word apocalypse. It's where, it's uh, the book of Revelation uh, is called the apocalypse, the unveiling. And that's really what this is. The unveiling of Christ's glory is what's before us here in this verse. It's not talking about the rapture. It's not talking about when Christ comes for us and takes us to be with himself to fulfill his promise in John 14 and to fulfill the scriptures that, that are laid out for us in 1 Corinthians that in a twinkling of an eye he will come and take us to be with himself or to fulfill the scriptures that the, as it says in Thessalonians that the dead in Christ shall rise first and we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the air. What comfort that we have for that. That's the rapture. When Christ comes back for his own and takes us to be with himself. That's the rapture. But what's really being referred to here is the unveiling. When Christ's glory is unveiled, and that's at his second coming, when he comes back for, uh, when he comes back with his own. When we come with him, there's a better way to put it, when we come with him and he is revealed to a world that has rejected him and his glory is manifested and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's king of kings and lord of lords. What a day that's going to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Titus, he says that, that we should be looking not only for the blessed hope, but the glorious appearing. Two distinct things. The blessed hope, the rapture, and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he is revealed to all the world. In fact, Paul says this is such a special day that in 2 Timothy, he says that there is a laid up for him a crown of righteousness, but not only for him, but for all those who love his appearing. <coughs> you see, there's going to be crowns given out at the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible, the New Testament, talks about five different crowns. And one of them is a crown of righteousness. 
Because the way in which we live affects that day. It has nothing to do with salvation. But if we live for the righteousness of Christ that will be manifested in the day to come, if we're living for that now, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for us. It's a tremendous thought, really, when we stop and think about it. And, and this is why that he says in 1 John, remember those verses in 1 John? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are, present tense, we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed, that's our word, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, at his glorious appearing, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so this unveiling, he says, we, we eagerly await for the revelation, this unveiling of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. What a tremendous thing. And so the splendor of this is that we wait. The splendor of His grace is that we are going to see not just His grace in our life presently, but we'll see His glory in a day to come. What a thing to anticipate. And then number eight, I want to just underline this, and that is the security of of grace. We saw the securing grace back in verse 6, but here in, in, in this verse is the security of grace. He uses this same word, confirm, uh, to the end, uh, blameless. In other words, uh, that you and I, as he says here, that you may be blameless. Let me start at verse 8. Who will also confirm you to the end? What securing thing is that? You know, some people believe that you can be saved today and lost tomorrow. How miserable of a life that would be if you always lived in the fear of losing your salvation. And so what Paul, what, what, what is said here by Paul is that there is such a thing as the security of grace that we're in his hand and no man can pluck us out of his hand. John 10. The voice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that. And so this means this word blameless. He says that you might be, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you might be blameless. What does that mean? Well, we've had, we've gone through a couple of presidents that uh, I remember President Clinton and, and President Trump. They both were, were impeached. Uh, at least they had to go through the impeaching process where there were some that wanted to get rid of them both, right? They were impeached, and there was dirt brought before both of them and about both of them, and they tried to impeach them. Well, what this is telling us is that we are impeachable. That's the word, actually. That, 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 that there's nothing in my life that anyone, the accuser or anyone else, can say, yeah, he can't get into heaven because of that. No, because we're in Christ. That's our position. 
What a tremendous thing. We're impeachable. I love that. And, and, and just to back this up with another verse, in, in Romans chapter 8, just put another verse alongside of it. Here's the question Paul asked in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You see, no matter who, what the charge is or who brings the charge, we're secure in Christ. And so how wonderful is that? And, and so we have this thought here presently, uh, the, the speech and the knowledge accompanying evangelists, evangelizing the lost. The gifts are given for the church. Uh, the gift of grace. God has enriched the body of Christ so that each member can be used to edify and, and uh, strengthen one another. And so as we consider this then, uh, there's one last thing that I want to bring before us in verse 9. Uh, we have seen together uh, this morning already, we've seen the, uh, the encouraging gratitude that he had for them. We saw the enriching grace of God, and we saw eight different aspects of that. But then lastly in verse 9, I want to show us the engulfing guarantee. By engulfing, I mean it, it, just, it just overflows. It, it just overwhelms us to think of this guarantee. Who gives the guarantee? And, and what is the uh, source of enjoyment in that guarantee? Notice this. God is faithful. If you look in the Greek on this word, God is faithful, what you will read is that faithful is God. That's the correct way, uh, according to the Greek. It's not that God is faithful, it's faithful is God. And, and in the Greek, the first word in the sentence is the word that's being magnified. It's the word that's being really emphasized. So what we have here is the engulfing faithfulness of God. And he says that God is faithful, that faithful is God. In fact, if you read through this, in the New Testament, what you find eight times in the New Testament, we read God, uh, we read of the faithfulness of God or the faithfulness of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it just reminds us, one of my favorite is in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, I believe it is, in verse 13, I think, where it says that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. That's the character of God. And God cannot deny his own faithfulness. God cannot deny his own character. And so God is faithful. Uh, another verse uh, that we often think is when we sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, verse 9. But what about in your life when things come up and, and, and you struggle and there's temptation? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that, that in verse 13, it tells us there that no temptation, which is common to men, that God is always, God is faithful and provides a way of escape for you. God is faithful. 
and he provides a way of escape. And so those are just a few of these things that we see in God's faithfulness. And notice this, not only is God faithful, that's his character, but notice this, the call of God. What has God called us to? Now we have talked about the call, look at verse 1, uh, Paul was called. In verse 2, we're called to be saints. Uh, with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord. So there's much emphasis on this call. But what I want to emphasize for us today is not only the character, the engulfing guarantee of the faithfulness of God, the character of God, but also the fact that God has called us. Don't miss this. What has God called us to? He says he's called us into the fellowship of his Son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, as I think of this, beloved, what a privilege for you and I that we've been reconciled to God through the finished work of the Lord Jesus, that he has called us into this relationship where we can have fellowship. What is the word fellowship? Koinia in the Greek. What does that mean? It means partnership, to have in common. And so we have in common with God, His Son. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. This is what we've been brought into. And it's a tremendous thing for us to consider. And, and just in closing, look at this. Four things referring to the Lord Jesus. He's called His Son. That speaks of His deity. He is called Jesus that speaks of his humanity. He is called the Christ. That speaks of his anointing. He's the anointed Messiah. He was, he's the anointed priest. He's the anointed prophet. He's the anointed king. He's the anointed one. The Messiah. And our Lord. That speaks of his authority in my life. And why does he have this authority in my life? Because of the grace of God. And that's what really these first nine verses bring us into this amazing grace of God. May the Lord encourage us. Go back over the, your outline. Go back over your notes uh, this week and just look. In fact, do this. Here's a, here's a piece of homework. You mind it? Well, I'll give it to you anyway, even if you do mind it. Read every day. The first nine verses. Read them over every day this week. And see this amazing position that we've been brought into. Let's pray. Father, today we just want to thank you for your beloved Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that you brought us into uh, through him. We thank you for this position that we found in Christ. We thank you for your grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. We just thank you so much for what you've done, bringing us into this. We recognize the fact that we don't deserve any of it, and yet we're blessed with all of it. And we thank you for it. And now we just ask that you would bless your word to our hearts, encourage us as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.